listening to The Tired Activist. It's your boy, Malini. My preferred pronouns are she and her. Hi, I'm Kayla. My preferred pronouns are she and her. Hello, my name is Alyssa. My preferred pronouns are she and her. Uh, my name is Vivian, and I use she, they pronouns. And today we have our second guest star, Agape. She's just a wonderful, gorgeous, beautiful human being, and I absolutely love her. Agape, tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> Thank you, Molly. You flatter me. But hi, my name is Agape. I go by she, her pronouns. Uh, my dad is a pastor and he is also a theologian. He's gone to uh, school for this. So I've been given some of his knowledge for this topic. And just I know a lot of things about the Bible as being a pastor's kid. So yeah, I'm ready and excited to join today's discussion. Yay! Yay! We love you here. So, uh, what is Christian fundamentalism? That is the question on everybody's mind, or it could not be because you already know what it is. Uh, originally, uh, it was a movement uh, started by pretty much white American Protestants um, in the early uh, 19th and 20th centuries. The word fundamentalism was introduced into the English language in 1922, but it wasn't coined until, I mean, it was coined earlier than that. Um, Basically, it's kind of like uh, the belief that the Bible is the absolute truth and, and set in stone and taking the literal translation and following it to the T. Um, it was a response to the modern views and interpretations theologians were putting out at the time that were created uh, to you know, evolve with the times. You could really sum it up as anti-modernism if you wanted. Um, it was staying true to the literal interpretation, not even maybe true, but like following the absolute literal translation and everything in the Bible. Basic church setup and one that most churches follow to this day is, you know, congregational sermon with singing and prayer, uh, but it differs from denomination to denomination. Uh, some, but not all, um, fundamentalists will not drink, smoke, dance, or go to the movies or plays. But it really just kind of depends, uh, once again. Uh, so it's usually institutions or places of education that are more strict. Fundamentalists can't watch Hamilton. Uh, yes, they're doomed to live without Lin, Linny boy, our, our boy Lin. Honestly, <laughs> Hamilton should not exist, but that's, that's my hot take for today. In 1910, there was a list created of five fundamental doctrines, and this was basically where you could say that it really came into existence as it was kind of, you know, quantified and put on paper. Um, it was made by a pres Presbyterian assembly uh, who wanted people to be ordained by believing the list that follows. One, the in inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. Two, the virgin birth of Christ. Three, the atonement of Christ. Four, the bodily resurrection of Christ. And five, the history and realness of biblical miracles. There's a lot of discourse around uh, the proper or correct options in life, but basically uh, the idea is that one side is following the Bible uh, to the standards of God and the others are the sinful world. And basically it's like an us versus them kind of deal. Righteousness is a big concern, as well as um, the idea that you need to, like, save people from the outside world. And that's where you kind of get stuff like imperialism that we'll talk about later and this kind of idea of purity. They teach by the Bible and usually nothing else. Uh, for example, they reject studying it from a more critical and historical view for most of the time. But this is more, like, on the extreme side of fundamentalism. Uh, when it comes to modern theologians studying the Bible, there is a lot more of a critical view placed on it, especially the first five books, as it was a collection of inserts and texts from multiple people. Modernism is quoted as figuring out many of the contradictory 
texts or ideas in the Bible, but have also raised concerns and doubt over the historical accuracy of the texts, which is in turn questioning biblical authority, which is what fundamental uh, American Protestant Protestantism thrives off of and basically believes in. They follow the idea of sola scriptura, uh, which is the Latin uh, words for by scripture alone. Therefore, any challenge to the text is seen as an undermining to Christianity as a whole for Presbyterians and the fundamentalist views. Uh, so yeah, that's essentially like a brief overview of things I could find on fundamentalism and the basic ideas around it. Uh, let us welcome the history section of our podcast. <laughs> Yes. May 25th, 1919 is generally considered the exact start date of modern Christian fundamentalism. And keep in mind that 1919, or like the time around that, brought a lot of change in America. Like African Americans were officially considered full citizens. Yay! The automobile industry was thriving. World War I had ended. Women were able to vote. American consumerism was booming. And like basically modernity was taking over everyday life. And with the societal change uh, came a religious revolution. A different form of Christianity became more popular called biblical uh, liberalism. Biblical liberalism made practical assumptions when interpreting the Bible, and they believed in like ideas like gender equality, and they would incorporate Darwinism to Genesis, which was becoming popular around the time. But with this revolution came a counter-revolution, which was Christian fundamentalism, which believed in the literal teachings of the Bible. So, going back to May 25th, 1919, 6,000 clergy members met in Philadelphia, and they were very concerned with a sudden change in society, and they believed that it was foreshadowing the second coming of Christ. The whole conference was white, which is really significant because, to this day, fundamentalism is, often goes hand-in-hand hand with racism. So, you have to understand there's, like, a lot of institutional racism in um, fundamentalism. And the founder of fundamentalism, William Bell Riley, claimed that the conference was more significant than Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the church door, which is a statement. The entire conference was basically a series of fear-mongering clergy members talking about how modern ideas like racial and gender equality was bad, and to reject modern ideas and how Christ was coming back. They saw the rebuilding of Palestine, the end of World War I, and the creation of the League of Nations as, quote, roads to Armageddon, um, which is also why a lot of, like, Christian fundamentalists are still to this day against Palestine. Um, and they went as far as to claim that the leader of the League of Nations would be an antichrist, which is hilarious because they're giving the League of Nations way more credit than it deserves. This one bigoted conference would lead to magazines and articles published around the country about fundamentalism, which would eventually be taught in churches across the country. So if you want to read more about Christian fundamentalism, like I don't have time to go really in-depth into his history. So if you want to read more about Christian fundamentalism, I will link a New York Times article. It's it's a really good article in the description. Click the link in the description below. <laughs> Agape, take it away. <laughs> okay, Woo! so I feel like uh, Molly and Alyssa touched on points that were more, more of the history aspect and how it like affects modern day America. I mean, I know Kayla will touch on that later, but they, I feel like I can talk more about the actual Christian doctrine from a Christian perspective. And basically, fundamentalists believe that Christianity is the only correct religion. Um, there are so many religions in the world, but the only way um, you will have fulfillment is through Jesus Christ, is what most fundamentalists believe. And it says in John 14, 6, 
he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And fundamentalists also believe that there is a heaven and a hell, and that true believers will go to heaven if they truly believe in Jesus Christ, and non-believers will go to hell. The Bible is the only true word. Um, the Bible is the word of God, and it was written by men, but inspired by God. And there are many, many valuable lessons that you can learn in other religious, religious texts, but truly the Bible is the only scripture for true eternal life. And there are no errors or contradictions in the Bible. So since the Bible is the true word, and since you can only believe what the Bible says as like what you should follow in life, then whatever scriptures are written in there, you should also apply to your life. So that's why there's a controversy with things like abortion and homosexuality, because there are several verses that people point to and say, it's written in the Bible, therefore we should not apply it to modern life because it is sinful. And then a lot of issues on like evolution come from fundamentalism. So there's something called old earth creationism and young earth creationism. And basically old earth creationism says that creation is done over like hundreds or thousands or millions of years because God isn't necessarily like a human. So his concept of time is not very similar to what humans experience. There is a, they say that God is the beginning. He's the alpha and omega. omega. He's the beginning and the end. Therefore, he is like in all, con like all years of times. He is in the present. He's in the past and he's in the future all at the same time. Therefore, we can't really compare it to like the creation as six 24 hour days. So it kind of goes hand in hand with like what people are saying about evolution, but in a creationism kind of aspect. But young earth creationism says that God created the world in six 24 hour days. So like evolution doesn't exist. How can the earth exist for millions of years if it's only been here for like 10,000 years? And so most fundamentalists, I think, believe in uh, young earth creationism. So they reject all teachings for evolutionism. Oh, also, according to fundamentalism, science isn't really something that can be trusted. You can see it in, um, with Galileo and the Catholic Church, how he was like, actually, we don't rotate. This, the earth doesn't like sit in the middle and everyone ro everything rotates around it. We rotate around the sun. And the church was like, stay at home. We don't want your opinions. And every time new science is introduced, fundamentalists are like, you can't go by that. We have to go by the Bible because the Bible actually, is the only I true think word. The Catholic Church was like pretty... Um, okay with Galileo. It was really after the, the Reformation that like Protestants, honestly, and like uh, Calvinists especially were like very like, oh no, that's heretical, I think. But I mean, I, I wanted to use like a more general example because I feel like everyone knows that the Catholic Church was kind of like, grr, <laughs> during the time. Uh, but if we like, I think that the Catholic Church was definitely more on their heads like during the Enlightenment movement, as you said, in the Reformation and such. Um, and also they believe in the second coming of Christ. Most Christians, I believe, think that Jesus will come back to earth um, in his time. No one knows when this time is, which is kind of funny because so many people predict dates for when he's going to come. But it says in the Bible that no one will know the time he'll come and he'll take his followers back with him to heaven. And this is called the rapture. So you can read about this in Revelations, and Jesus also talks about this in Matthew 24. Yeah. Now we segue to how fundamentalism affects modern America. Take it away, Kayla. All right, okay. It does, in a way, um, create, become like a new form of imperialism because it's the belief that Christianity is the only real religion, and it kind of forces beliefs onto others who may not agree with Christianity. And not only does it, like, Force Christianity. It also forces homophobia because um, because fundamentalists take almost everything in the Bible literally. That also includes includes 
using the Bible to justify homophobia. One popular verse used to justify it is Leviticus 18.22, which says that men shall not lie with men for it is an abomination. However, in many other translations, such as the German and Polish versions from the 1800s, the verse is actually written, men shall not lie with young boys as he does with women, for it is an abomination. Heteronormativity aside, the verse is actually believed to refer to pedophilia instead of being sin, not homosexuality. There's another homophobic verse found in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, which says, or do you know that, not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, or it also or it says homosexuals in other translations, such as the New King James Version and the New Standard Version. However, the term homosexual was not actually written in English Bibles until the late 1950s with the New King James Version just came out. It was originally written in the ancient Greek version with the word, I don't know how to pronounce this, I'm so sorry, arsenokoitai, which translates to pedophile instead of homosexual or the sexually immoral. So it changes the verse to boy molesters will not inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't say homosexual at all. And I think regarding like these interpretations, uh, you do have to like have a, some sort of knowledge about like Greek and Roman culture um, in that like sex in like Greek, ancient Greek culture, um, because uh, Paul was like a, a Roman citizen. So he was he, he wrote in Greek. Right. And mm -hmm. he was also familiar with like um, Roman culture and Rome at this time was occupying uh, uh, what was known as Judea right uh like the area that's the west bank today so they were the ones who were like in charge uh that they, they, they were like basically like in charge of of this area um during like the time that jesus was alive and in ancient greek and roman culture sex was not seen as like they didn't have like modern like notions of like sexual orientation like we do today like straight or gay or or bisexual people or whatever there, there was like this this uh pattern of like the daristy in these cultures um and it really was not about like, like in modern times, like, oh, you're, you're straight or you're gay. So you like only have sex with women or you only have sex with men. Uh, a lot of, a lot of Greek people, um, you know, it was, it wasn't about like whether or not the person was like a woman or a man. It was about like whether or not you were the person in power in the relationship. Um, as time has gone on, a lot of societal things have changed a lot, but fundamentalism oftentimes doesn't take that into account and only looks at it as it is right now or as it applies to right now, instead of looking at the history or looking at what the future ramifications could be. I think that's a very interesting point that you make there because it really helps kind of reinforce the idea of looking and in like the historical context and the idea of the text and stuff like that that was written at the time. Yeah, yeah I do think that like um, fundamentalist Christianity and like especially like modern like right-wing or conservative Christianity, I think it is like very revisionist, right? Because they're like looking at the Bible and they're reading it um, like literally, but like the, these people, a lot of them, like they don't they don't read biblical Greek, they don't read Hebrew, and I'm not saying you have to read biblical Greek or Hebrew in order to study the Bible, but like these these people, they they take like these modern English translations at face value, um, and they they're like not reading it within the context of like the culture in which it was written. They're reading it with like their own like cultural blinders on. Yeah, and in that exactly. Way, they're like applying these this text mm -hmm. in ways that it was like clearly not meant to apply to yeah it's looking through society today instead of what were the origins and the ideas behind this in the original text it's more how do my how do my eyes see this versus how would 
um, like the original writers or maybe even God look at this through the text of the time and stuff like that. Yeah. And I, I mean, you could argue that like, you know, liberal Christianity or like, or liberation theology or, you know, like left wing, like Christian philosophy is like revisionist as well. Um, but I mean, at least yeah. I feel like the, with, with like left wing, uh, certain left wing biblical scholars, you know, I'm not an expert. I feel like with liberation theology, there is this idea of like contextual theology, um, right? This idea that like theology is not like, like this ideal that's like floating out in space, you know, it's mm-hmm. not like abstract theory it is like informed by the time that you're in and I think that like acknowledging that theology is informed by the cultural context that you're living through is so much it's it's such a step forward compared to just being like oh this is this is how you interpret the bible like for everyone Mm -hmm. I I agree with that I don't think like it's hard to say if there's like like a completely right way because then you know then you get into all the nitty-gritty and stuff like that but Mm -hmm. I do definitely agree but like looking through it through different aspects of culture and different uh, like identity and different beliefs at the time is so important and I, I think that's a very important thing about kind of um you know m- maybe a little bias here but like the modernist kind of movement is looking at the the context and the idea behind the text and where it was written and why it was written I also talked about um sexism and traditional generals because there are some quotes in the bible so in deuteronomy moses kind of pushes rape culture by saying that a woman could marry her rapist under certain circumstances but jesus says in matthew during the sermon on mount to not blame the victim and it said take accountability for the man who was the one to initiate sexual encounters with women by looking at lustfully and objectifying them definitely like the early church it had like uncommon levels of gender parity for the time which is not like a lot of people excuse like slavery being like oh it was a different time but like honestly honestly like in in this like culture uh of like uh roman occupied judea like women were perceived as like property like women did not have agency like it was men who uh controlled them like economically sexually and in like every single aspect of their lives and like the early church was shaped like fundamentally by like their female leaders and there there are a lot of like wealthy women who got involved with like the early church in Rome and it was still like illegal to be a Christian and you had to meet underground. So a lot of these like wealthy women, uh, they had like these like huge houses, right? So they would have like spaces in these houses for people to meet secretly. Uh, so in AP history, we learned about um, this one, like, so in Rome, like underground, they have like these catacombs, right? And there's like this one section that belonged to this uh, wealthy Roman woman named Priscilla, uh, who was named uh, who was married to this guy called uh, Manius Asilius Glabrio, uh, who was a Christian um, who was killed by Domitian, who was a Roman emperor who was like, very anti-Christianity. She like sheltered Christians and like a lot of like early Christian martyrs are actually buried in her catacombs uh, because, you know, that's like they would meet at like her at her house and stuff. So like without without women, like we're, the early church would not have gone anywhere. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Uh, hear that, Mitch McConnell? Hear that? <laughs> Women! Yeah! Speaking of Mitch uh, McConnell, though, like, I feel like we should talk about, like, how, like, conservative Christianity got the stranglehold on American politics it does today. You learn a little bit about this in A-Push, but, uh, so during the 60s and 70s, you have, like, the civil rights movement, and like the sexual revolution, right? So like women, black people, Asian people, uh, 
you know, all these, all these like different groups of people are like coming together and like voicing, you know, how they have been left out of like, like American politics and um, how they've been like historically oppressed. And they're saying, we want, we want to be treated like people and, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so you have like, like abortion becoming more common uh, in, con in contraception. And you also have um, a lot of, a lot of like racist rhetoric up to this point, um, like demonized black men who like uh, dated or married white women, right? So you had like people speaking out against that as well. Uh, and so there was a backlash in the 80s, especially, um, where, and, and also like in the 70s to some extent, but it really started gaining traction in the 80s, which we'll get to later. But these evangelical Christians were sort of like taken aback by all this social change, especially regarding the sexual revolution um, and, you know, rights for like gay people as well, because like Stonewall was around this time. Uh, and so these evangelical Christians were like, well, we can't have our country going to shit. And at the same time, at the same time, like the 70s, 80s-ish, you have like the Nixon presidency. Uh, and Nixon is like rolling back all these social programs that FDR and Linda B. Johnson instituted um, to, you know, help get, get people out of poverty, especially with Linda B. Johnson. Uh, he did institute a lot of social programs to help African-Americans get out of poverty. And, you know, to an extent, these, these programs were meant to like blunt the political influence of the Black Panthers saying like, oh, you don't need like radical leftist politics, just, uh, you know, get like a job under this like federal like work uh, program and, you know, everything will be fine. But at the same time, they, these social programs were really like helping a lot of people um, economically. Uh, and so with when you have like Nixon, like liberalizing the economy um, and like rolling back all these programs, you also see a lot of people's like economic uh, well-being like decrease, right? Because like now you have like stagflation and like all these other like hallmarks of like a, of a failing economy. And after Nixon, you have, you have Jimmy Carter, who um, was probably one of the least imperialist presidents of like the late 20th century, uh, which honestly the bar is on the floor, but, but Jimmy Carter, uh, he was known for like not pursuing an aggressive foreign policy. Uh, and he gave, he gave this speech called like the Malay speech, right? Where he says like, oh, we have like a crisis of confidence um, in this country. And so also around this time, you have like the Iran hostage crisis which people thought that Jimmy Carter dealt with too softly, like he wasn't hard enough on Iran. Uh, basically, like oil is not doing too hot in the economy right now. So you have like all these problems with the economy, all these problems with the country. And at the same time, you uh, are on the tail end of like this sexual revolution where like gay people are getting rights, women are getting more access to abortion. So evangelical Christians see these as like fundamentally linked. They see, oh, God is punishing us because our country is like failing morally. It's not a crisis of confidence, it's a crisis of morality. And so beginning in the late 70s, you have this like conservative backlash, um, especially led by this guy called Jerry Falwell Sr. He starts this uh, political group called the Moral Majority, which like organizes conservative Christians as a political bloc to donate to, campaign for conservative politicians. And like one of their first big wins is getting Ronald Reagan into office, who we all know according to um, Killer Mike, uh, is the devil incarnate. You know, this uh, group is like lobbying uh, for conservative candidates and legislation to, you know, roll back abortion rights and rights for gay people. Um, 
and Ronald Reagan really sees this like coalition happening and he decides that he's going to take advantage of it and really campaign on it. So Ronald Reagan comes into office, uh, you know, dog whistling to like the Christian right, indicating that he's supporting them in the same way that like Donald Trump came into office by appealing to the Christian right. And the funny thing about Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump is that both of them came out of Hollywood. Like Ronald Reagan was like a B, B tier actor, a B list actor before he became president. And Donald Trump was a reality TV star who inherited a lot of money from his dad. Also, did they have the same slogan? And also, neither Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump have been, like, reported as regular churchgoers. Like, there's that one speech that Donald Trump gave at um, a Christian university, I believe, where he says, two Corinthians, which is like, ugh, ugh, my Christian education. (laughs) I'm not even Christian, and I know that's wrong. (laughs) So, like, obviously, like, neither of these people are very, like, as, as ardent Christians as their supporters, I would say, um, you know, and obviously Donald Trump has done some very non-Christian things, you know, such as harassing women, cheating on his wives, uh, raping you know, children, that, like, yeah, literally raping children, you know, things that like the, the Christian right, if like Obama did, they would be, oh my God, this man is the devil incarnate. The thing, the thing is, even though neither of them are like really like as ardent Christians as their supporters, you know, they say, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, roll back abortion protections. We're gonna like, uh, you know, roll back protections for trans people, for gay people. And the Christian right is like, yes, we want that. Um, and so when Reagan wins, wins his election and he comes into office, that shows like the Christian right, oh, we, we, can, we can win elections. You know, we are a political bloc that people need to care about. And since then, uh, the Christian right, you know, like with uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., who, by the way, uh, he is the founder of uh, Liberty University. Like this, since since like the election of Ronald Reagan, the Christian right in America politically is like a plague that we will never be rid of. Well, we will we will be rid of them of them eventually, but right now they are really just not going away. Um, Gen Z, please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So. That is that is why American politics is uh, has so many you know white Christian right wing men involved. I think um, after this transi- transition, that like Republican is inherently like straight white Christian male. Um, I feel like just even coming from this family, many Christian supporters are like, especially fundamentalists, are very um, they like grip onto the fact that like the state and the church has to mix they want uh policies that enforce biblical teachings and so like if they want to give like um let's say lgbt like uh better sex ed for lgbt students they'd be like bro that's wrong we don't want that and they like get pissed and they're like oh the darn left always putting in practices that are against the bible and it's like i understand that um just like coming from this background that you would want stuff that would be according to your religion because politics obviously affects your country the, the most. And the more your um, country drifts away from your religion, you're kind of like, um, what's going on? Especially if your religion is, um, if you're like very close or attached to your religion. So I feel like with people like Trump, Trump who arguably to me has like literally zero Christian personality whatsoever. And as you said, it is very apparent that he is not 
cracked open a Bible in a very, very long time. He so, holds a Bible like he hasn't held one in like 15 years. Like, true. You mean upside down? <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't held a, held a book in it's 15 years. It's not even years. a joke. So like the thing is, okay, you we can observe. And a lot of like left, more left-leaning um, Christians like me can like kind of assess, okay, of the personalities we see in the Bible of Jesus, Jesus says to be kind towards everyone. Jesus says to love your neighbor. Jesus says to love your enemies. And if we assess this with like Donald Trump, Donald Trump obviously doesn't really fit into the criteria of what Jesus has told us to do as Christians. Now, I'm not saying that like I can inherently go and like judge everyone and be like, they're not a Christian. They're not a Christian. They're a Christian. They're not a Christian because that kind of like defeats the purpose. But I feel like you can kind of match the characteristics with each other. And so you would think, okay, Christians didn't necessarily know how he was going to lead an office. So now they it's been four years, we've seen his true colors. If they haven't seen it already, why aren't they voting for someone else? And I think it's that they hold on to the fact that at least this person has my same beliefs. And I value my religion more than anything else. And I value Christian policies and politics more than anything else. So I'm going to ignore all the bad stuff that he's done that like don't fit into the Bible at all, simply because this guy has promised me uh, for my country to stay Christian. And that's the most important thing to me. And I feel like this is where I differ with my parents because I'd rather have someone who is not Christian that is enforcing Christ-like policies into like America rather than someone who claims they are Christian but has absolutely none of the character whatsoever. Like that pisses me off the most. So yeah, I, I, I've had a lot of arguments with my mom about her being like, oh, you're like a radical leftist or you're on the, well, she calls me a Democrat, but I don't really think I can put myself in that category. So she's like, um, she's like, oh, because you believe in this and you believe that they should do this. And the left is in power. I think this is another thing with like Trump supporters. They think that um, the left is like primarily in power. And like, I was talking and my mom's like, the gays have all the money now. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> no, we don't. Wait, I no, didn't understand. No, they don't. <laughs> not, not look at look at the people. Look at the people who like own Bank of America. Count how many of them are gay. Count how many <laughs> of them are like black. Count how many of wait. them are even like leftists. It's zero. Sure, Lindsey it's zero. Graham is closeted. Well, okay. I I mean, it doesn't matter if he's closeted or not. If none of his policies actually like advocate for the rights of gay people. The left does have media control, but that doesn't mean that we have like actual government control. There's like I wouldn't even say the left has media control. I think it depends on what you define as the left, because in America, the thing about the left is everything in American politics is so no, it's it everything in American politics is just so right of everything else in the world. Well, not everything else. If if you compare to like um, Europe, for example, and I'm not saying like we want to be like Europe. I'm not saying that's the goal. You know, I also hate the Nordic model, whatever. Like, if you compare us to certain European countries, even their right-wing politicians don't believe for now, like, for example, in the UK, completely rolling back and privatizing the NHS. If a right-wing politician pointed to the American healthcare system and said, I want to do that, like, the people in the UK would riot. In the UK, <laughs> like, the NHS is, like, the centrist position. Having a, a broken NHS that, like, is maybe, like, privatized here and there, that's, like, the centrist position. Present America, the centrist position is like Medicare for those who want it. Right? Yeah, our left like, is literally centrist in other parts of the world. When when you talk about the American left, there there's this idea that like for example, like CNN or like Rachel Maddow is like left wing, and that just means that they're left of the American center. 
But the American center is fundamentally right wing because the American center is fundamentally capitalist and does not support the rights of black people, of gay people, of working class people, et cetera, et cetera. I, in, if you define the American left as people who are anti-capitalist or at least even like social democratic, right? Those people have no power. Like Bernie Sanders is not the, the democratic nominee. And to me, yeah. that signifies the American left does not have the power that conservatives think that they do. The way that conservatives talk about Antifa is <laughs> completely not based in reality, right? Like Antifa, Wait, first like, of all, Antifa's Oh not my a gosh. Antifa's not a group. It's an ideology. It's, it's not. not. Second of all, Antifa doesn't say that to get a promotion, you have to kill black people. You know what organization <laughs> does? The KKK. <laughs> So why is Antifa a terrorist group, but the KKK isn't? That's like hmm. saying that you can be a terrorist for being, I don't know, a K-pop stan. It's not an actual group. It's an ideology. Yeah, uh, but, but Molly, remember that... we support big-time socialists. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Damn it, you're right. I'm gonna go home. Uh, the way the right talks about Antifa, I feel like, is is like very indicative of the way that they think about the left, because they think of Antifa as like like unified organization that's hell-bent on like destroying Western civilization, right? And like in reality, Antifa is very fractured. There are a lot of different groups who may or may not be anti-fascist, or who may or may not go to protests, uh, you know, dressed in black or whatever. They're not unified. They don't, they don't, it's, it's not organized. No one pays dues to Antifa. Like, there are people out there who think that, think that people pay dues to Antifa. But, and there are people out there who think it's, like, funded by George Soros. The right thinks that the left is, is organized, is, like, doing things. And I'm not saying the left isn't doing things, but there is, there is no, like, unified leftist behemoth that's trying to destroy Western civilization. Like, I wish, I wish the left were unified and could actually, like, you know, do things beyond, like, trying to get Bernie Sanders in the office. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just how that's just how American politics is. I also had a point about like Jesus being whitewashed, but I don't know if that really counts it applies to being fundamentalist. It, it kind of does. Because you know, it white is. Protestants and all of a sudden Jesus is white. Swedish Jesus. That's why we have Swedish Jesus. Is thank you, fundamentalist. Because yeah, in Revelation it is fundamentalist revisionism calling Jesus white or painting Jesus as white. And in Revelations one fourteen to fifteen, it says his head and hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire, and his feet unto like, and his feet like unto fine brass. Fine brass is not white, as if they were, as if they were burned in the corn, and his voice is sound of many waters. So given the description, Jesus was, deaf, it's, it can be um, assumed that Jesus had like tan or dark skin with curly hair, which many Middle people- Middle Eastern king. As well Wait, as I'm Jesus. I'm the one out of all of us. I'm the one here that probably looks the most like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Molly is Jesus. When were you going to tell us? Molly is well, Jesus confer. <laughs> when are you going to tell us? There have been a lot of depictions of Jesus I've seen over the years, and I didn't even really think or take the time to realize. Wait, why is Jesus what like light skinned in all of these, and has either blonde or really light brown hair and has like either blue or like light brown eyes like it literally never clicked until like a couple years ago where i'm like can wait that imagine? literally wouldn't have made sense <laughs> like can you imagine like seeing this just really white kid when everyone is like brown like you're just <laughs> like like this kid who is brown uh, born to like a brown mom is just like really white and has blonde hair. I would freak out. What Jesus? They even do that skin. to Mary. Like, <laughs> no. What? Like, uh, <laughs> this is my light skin king. 
No, okay, I'll stop now. Okay, I'll but stop. like they even do that to Mary. Is like the whole thing about the virgin birth and her being pure. They also try to erase the fact that she had other sons afterwards because she was like thought to be a virgin her entire life. Thought no, to be Mary, pure. Yeah, no, absolutely like, not. Associating that with like white kind of whiteness Bro, and like that so it's like intertwining those two where it's like they live in a dirty middle eastern society but these two people who are so pure and gallant and you know the virgin and the son of god are white and stuff mm-hmm. like that then you start to be like why are they the pure ones and why are the ones around them kind of depicted in like dirty or darker skin and kind of like that kind of stuff if you look at some depictions and stuff like it also oppresses women because it like holds up this idea that it's like if you're a woman you have to be pure and like all that nonsense exactly you have to be like the virgin mary (laughs) to be fair jesus also support the samaritans yeah no he 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 literally has come for every single person it does not matter if you are a guy or if you're a girl Or if you're from you a different background. Mm-hmm. Fundamentalism is nonsense because, let, let's be honest, fundamentalism isn't about, like, following the Bible to a T. It's about picking and choosing what you want to follow. Yep, it's cherry right? picking. Yeah, it's cherry picking. It says, love your neighbors. If you're saying burn the gays, you are not loving your neighbors. Fun fact. Um, <laughs> and if you are, like like supporting racism and supporting the murder of black children uh by not supporting black lives matter you are not loving your neighbors if you are truly a christian i i mean this is my personal opinion and i guess i i don't have the authority to say this in any way but if you are truly a christian you should believe like in supporting your neighbors i think though this is a good time to talk about liberation theology in a little more detail. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Spicy. Spicy. So, um, liberation theology grew out of, like, uh, originally, like, Catholics in, um, like, South America uh, in, like, honestly, like, in, like, the 70s-ish, so around the same time as, like, the Christian right was, like, gaining its political teeth in America, which is kind of scary to think about, um, you know. Well, I mean, it does make a lot of sense because, like, the... <clears throat> The economic reforms that like rolled back social programs in um, U.S. were also tied to um, like privatization uh, and economic devastation in South America. So around this time, you know, a lot of South American Catholics, especially, but like not all of them, just like a lot of them, started you know incorporating like different philosophies such as Marxism into their like theology. Um, And so the way that they view Jesus is like somewhat who promotes, like, you know, liberation and, like, care for the poor. It became, you know, liberation theology um, sort of was a way that, like, the Sandinistas, for example, which were, like, a leftist group in uh, Nicaragua, they sort of, like, got, you know, even, like, indigenous populations on board with, like, this, this, like, theology of, like, caring for the poor and, like, uplifting, you know, oppressed peoples. Um, And liberation theology also came and spread to the U.S. It primarily, like, uh, was spread through, like, Black theology. Uh, especially this guy called James Beach Cohn. And he has written a lot about how, like, Black theologians uh, view Jesus, like, in his experiences as, like, uh, analogous to the experiences of, like, Black people in America. And they see, like, biblical parallels between, um, especially, like, Exodus, uh, like, Harriet Tubman was, was compared to Moses, for example, and, like, African Americans, uh, and, you know, also with Jesus' experiences. Because, you know, by, by like, any sort of, like, uh, like, 
intellectually sound account, you know, Jesus was like a dark skinned Palestinian Jew. Uh, like that's just, that's just how the history works, you know? Um, and, you know, at this time, like, uh, what became later known as Palestine when the British occupied the West Bank, uh, it was occupied at that time by the Romans. So Jesus grew up under this, in this like occupied society where, um, you know, there are people who were like uh, also Jewish, but they were like collaborating with the Romans to um, reinforce these like oppressive hierarchies. And he was sort of like preaching this message of, right, like love and acceptance uh, for everyone and how like everyone is equal in society and like people should not have, uh, should not like uh, weaponize their like positions of like political power against like the poor and the oppressed and like use them as excuses like not to help people. Um, and you know, he was literally taken out by the Roman government and Jewish authorities for you know preaching that message, so um, black theology sees like he's like Jesus as like a, a mirror of like black people experiences in America, where you know they grow up in like this uh, society that is like fundamentally antagonistic to them for like who they are, uh, and I think I think it's just really cool, especially because um, black theology uh, was especially like a reaction to um, as I said before, like this sort of like abstract uh, theologizing uh happening like in like academic christian circles where it's like oh like there are these like universal principles about like who god is and like what we should like think about god and you know black theologists especially like james cone are saying no actually theology is contextual you know the way that we theologize is based off of like the context that we're in and the way that we see the bible is based off of like the experiences that we have uh with history and you know the like material factors around us and so I think that like this sort of like viewpoint of like, you know, of Jesus like coming, you know, to advocate for like the poor and the oppressed, because that is what he did. Like he hung out with the people in in like Jewish society who were ostracized from society, like women uh, and tax collectors uh, and, you know, people uh, who were had like diseases or were like viewed as unclean. Right. So. I think like that is like a very powerful way to view Jesus. And I think that is really um, the way that like Christians should go about the world instead of like viewing everyone. Because I feel like a lot of, a lot of Christians view like non-Christians as like people like whose mind you need to change or like, you know, like things, like things to be conquered in a sense, like, oh. Us versus them. Yeah, it is a very us versus them. The sinful world and the righteous Bible thumpers, you know, like. Yeah, it's yeah. like that's one of the key things about fundamentalism is like very much we need to save other people and we are the righteous ones in the situations and that the world is kind of like against them and everything. And that's why you get a lot of like also bringing it into politics like you get conservative Christians and stuff like that saying like the gay agenda and stuff like that. They have an agenda to do this an agenda to do that because they're working against us at all times. You know, they're making the frogs gay. Oh, no, <laughs> not my frogs. I just feel like Christians should not be doing, we should, we, we should, we should stop being colonizers, honestly, because I feel like Christianity has so many like powerful, like potential applications to people who are colonized, to people who are oppressed. I think for people who, who want to be Christian or people who are Christian, it can be such a powerful tool, like such an empowering tool to express like the ways in which you like fight against this, like these like forms of oppression. 
and it just makes me so mad that like Christians, you know, as as the Christian church has gained in like material and like political and economic influence, been like Christianity has been used as a tool to like oppress non-white people especially, and you know, gay people uh, and like non-cis people in general. So growing up in a Christian family, as I said, scripture is something that we like heavily prioritized. And my it's not like my parents were like, oh, you have to read the Bible and um, the Bible is like all of the stuff they say, like take it literally. I feel like they saw the Bible more like you can learn from it. And there are still so many things that Jesus says that you can apply to your life and are actually good. And when like, when you treat people with kindness and respect and how you treat your neighbor as yourself, I think those are like very important and uh, things that you can go on with life. And like, you can learn, anyone can learn from it regardless if they're Christian or not. So they're not necessarily fundamentalist in that way. Um, and they were more like relationship, their relationship with Jesus and like um, forming a connection with Jesus was more important than like just the straight up rules that the Pharisees were talking about, how they're more religion more than faith. So I feel like that's a different, diff- well, I can't speak. Um, how, there's a difference between my parents in that sense compared to fundamentalists. But in a sense, scripture was very, um, was a very big part of my life. And we would like always read it, regardless if it was books in Genesis, um, stories in uh, like the first five books, or if we were reading the New Testament and trying to identify what was going on in Revelations, because literally Revelations is the most confusing book I have ever read. And I have read it multiple times. And so um, with this, I feel like this is where fundamentalists arguably kind of get it wrong, because I feel like they're actually worshiping the Bible itself, the word, which, first of all, there are so many other books that were not included in the Bible. The Bible was kind of self-picked from, like, literal men, and they chose which parts go into the Bible and which parts do not. So I'm not saying that, like, the Bible is completely discreditable and, like, um, they put it out of order. But I, you do know that, like, Job, while it is in the middle of the Old Testament, is actually more around after Genesis uh, because it was actually more on that time period. And so um, while these people are reading scripture and they want to apply it in everyone's life, I don't feel like they're actually returning to the whole point of Christianity, which is the relationship with Jesus. And I also feel like they, as you said, cherry picking. I do think that non-Christians do cherry pick scriptures a lot, especially because they don't actually read the Bible. I don't feel like most of them do, but Christians definitely cherry pick the Bible a lot. So um, I think if they actually took the time to really read and invest and like pray about what can I learn from this? They'll find that the Bible is not like the Jesus God is not sexist. Like he, and there are parts in the Bible that like st- show strong women leaders like Deborah or Lydia or um, Esther, for example. Esther's like one of my favorite books in the Bible because it shows how a woman rose to power and how she used her position of power to help other people, to help her people. Like that is one of the most empowering stories to me. And a woman did that. So First of all, I think they need to realize that the Bible is not necessarily sexist. They also need to realize the Bible is not inherently racist. And Jesus, even if you find, like, because context is very important, I think you should, they should take the time to realize that Jesus created these people. He is not racist at all. He loves everybody. I feel like if they just took a bit of time to actually reflect on what their religion and what their faith says, instead of just the Bible and the metaphorical or literal words, they would actually grow to understand that Christianity is about love and not about just following the orders in the Bible. 
because it's literally all about the relationship. Christianity preaches that you're going to sin no matter what. And you're going to, if you're going to sin, you're going to go to hell. But because of Jesus' love and because he came down and helped you, you are going to heaven. It is not anything of your own doing. So I don't understand why these people get mad at other groups and don't get mad at other groups. Because in the end, as I said, God sees us all as sinners. So literally, my last words are just take time to understand that Christianity should be about love. It's been twisted. But if you really look, this religion is about love. So yeah. Thank you for tuning in. We appreciate it. Thank you to our lovely guest, Agape. Literally the love of our lives for giving us (laughs) such an incredible, um, (laughs) such an incredible piece and such an incredible uh, uh, opinion and point of view that we're able to use in this. We hope you have a fantastic day, fantastic night, and a fantastic rest of your week until inevitably you tune in again because you love us so much and you can't get enough of us. Thank you. (laughs) 